Hello and welcome to a very special Perusia podcast. We are inside the Advent Pilgrimage, and this is our first live show uh, as part of the Pilgrimage. And I'm Shabal Raish, your host, and we are very excited. Uh, day four of the Pilgrimage, today's video that went up is Steve Ray on Abraham. We've had such a great lineup of speakers so far. Day one, we had Matthew Leonard on the creation story. Day two, you would have seen Dr. Edward Shree on Adam and Eve. Day three, you would have seen um, Dr. John Bergsma, who spoke on Noah. And today, day four, Steve Ray on Abraham. So a great lineup of speakers. Uh, look out for tomorrow. Uh, we'll have uh, Isaac, and that's by Robert Haddad. And, 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 it, and the list will go on. So please, if you have not yet registered, uh, please go to perusiamedia.com. Put your name and email once you see the banner of Advent Pilgrimage and sign up. Also, in addition to all these pre-recorded uh, videos, uh, we are also doing these live shows. And so uh, there's a double double live show today. So we've got the liturgy guys with me. I'll introduce each of our guests in a moment. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Advent and the, and the liturgical uh, traditions behind Advent. So welcome, everyone. And our, our guest, very special to kickstart our live series. Um, it, it, it's the two hosts or two of the three hosts of the liturgy guys and from the liturgical institute i have jesse weiler and dr dennis mcnamara joining me hello gentlemen oh thank you very much for for uh for joining us today um maybe uh, we'll start at the moment uh, you are both in the united states are you in the same city to confirm no no so, <laughs> I'm, in, so dennis, I'm in new york based? Normally, I'm in Kansas, but right now I'm visiting family in New York for Thanksgiving holiday. So I'm sitting in my mom's dining room. So at least I'm not in her basement. <laughs> Fantastic. Lucky technology. We can take us anywhere. And and also, Jesse, where it looks like you're in a, uh, a choir loft there. Um, it's, uh, oh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is the chapel of the Immaculate Conception on the campus of the University of St. Mary of the Lake, where the Liturgical Institute is. So I'm in my office. I'm like the only one on campus. There's a stay at home or work from home order on campus, but they let me uh, stay in my office. So that's great. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I want to thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us. You've, you've, we want to talk about Advent today. Um, now I'll just do a little um, uh, promo here. You've already done a show on the liturgy guys uh, podcast about Advent. What, what was that called again? And we're going to have the link below. We've, we've done a couple of podcasts on Advent, but the one that we uh, just did was Adventurous. And uh, we just kind of go through some of the different things about Advent, uh, you know, different liturgical aspects, especially covering some of the solemnities that we find happening during Advent itself. And, you know, just some interesting tidbits. Fantastic. Yeah, that was led by Chris. Chris always knows rules and regulations and paragraph numbers to document. So we're covering that. On the podcast today, we'll talk probably more broadly about the nature of Advent. Yes, excellent. Well, well, if you want to watch that show, um, uh, in the comments below, we'll have the link to Adventitious, is Adventurous. Um, so uh, please uh, take uh, advantage of that, and you'll see all those great insights uh, and details of, of what the church teaches about this season. So very excited about that. But today, what we want to do is how to live Advent beautifully. Um, before we dive into um, the details of that. Well, very. Why don't we start with just a very basic overview? Uh, the season of Advent. Um, people may not realize uh, we're so used to our common calendar, uh, the secular calendar, where it's December. It's the twelfth month of the calendar year, and we're getting ready for year end. And we feel that we're closing out a year. We're looking at a New Year's resolutions, but in fact, the church has started a month early somehow. Uh, this is now the start of our our season. Could you please explain a bit about? Advent, what it is, and 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 sort of some of the some insights about about this beautiful feast, the beautiful season. Well, I'm happy to give start a start. With. You know, well, you know, Advent is funny because we think it's such an important part of the church calendar. It must have been there forever, but it actually, as many feasts goes, fairly uh, fairly young. You know, the, the church didn't even celebrate Christmas until the fourth century, at least as far as we know. Oh wow! And so, when you think about the history of Advent, as you know, I was doing a little research this morning. And uh, it's nobody really knows exactly when it started. There were certain dioceses where they had different kinds of fasting. It was actually much more penitential in the past than it is now. But the word itself, advent, is ad and venire. So if you know a little Spanish, venire still means to come, is infinite to come, to come to. So we're waiting for the coming of Christ. So it's a, it's a 
a period of joyful expectation is how the church talks about it now. Although in the past it was considered much more penitential. They had different ideas of uh, the second coming rather than the first coming. And so better be ready for the, the, the second coming of Christ. But now the church says we have three aims. One is we remember the first coming of Christ. We delight in the coming of Christ to us in the Eucharist. And then we wait uh, the second coming of Christ. So it's this triple fault understanding of preparation. Fantastic. Um, did you want to add to that, Jesse? Uh, was there anything else? That's it. Sure. I didn't well, realize it's only recent. <laughs> uh, also, the Advent always starts on the, the Sunday closest to the Feast, Feast of St. Andrew. And so we see these things uh, in progressive solemnity. We see all these different feasts and solemnities that actually matter. They're not just counting back, you know, from Christmas Day and saying, all right, well, uh, the four Sundays before Christmas, that's Advent. It actually goes beyond that as well. And like Dennis said, fairly recent, um, you know, developments in liturgical uh, tradition and time. But just like Easter and just like all of the other parts of the liturgical calendar, there's so much that goes into this. And, and even we're, we're factoring in the lunar calendar when it comes to the liturgical year, uh, especially when it comes into Easter as well. But then all these feasts that bookend different parts of the liturgical year, whether it's the baptism of St. John the Baptist or the Immaculate Conception or any of those things. So there's there's a rhyme and reason for all of this, and there's a purpose, and there's a reason that it's very detailed, because it's everything that we do, especially liturgical time, is consecrated itself. Uh, time itself is consecrated and made holy so that we can better perceive the heavenly glory. I love that. One of the um, great examples of that. One of the great examples of that is why is Christmas in December? And people argue about whether the Romans moved it there to get rid of pagan feasts, but it doesn't matter. The idea is when's the shortest day of the year? Well, roughly December 21st. And what's the longest day of the year, you know, in the summer. So you have John the Baptist's feast at the longest day of the year. I must decrease and he must increase, right? So the days grow shorter. And then Christmas wow. comes in the shortest day when and now the light starts to increase in the world. And so you have these theological realities that are not, they don't undo the natural order of things, but the natural order of things speaks of the order of God so that we can uh, understand his plan. And then the church has the authority to put them where it makes the most sense. Whether or not Jesus was actually born on December 25th, historically is not as important as the notion that he's the light came into the world and brings the, the, the light to the world every day as it gets longer and longer. Well, I, I did not realize that, uh, yeah, the concept of the shortest and longest day, that makes so much sense. It is obviously relevant to the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, we are based in the Southern Hemisphere, so it's a complete opposite. But So we don't get the exact um, uh, benefits, if you like. Uh, uh, Easter for us is is not in spring, but in, in, in fall for you guys, or autumn for us. Um, and so it's just completely flipped around in Australia. But uh, around the world, Northern Hemisphere, this, this makes clear sense. It's quite beautiful how, well, I mean, was that deliberate uh or is that just sort of a guide incident <laughs> the way they they design this well there are some different the scholars think differently there was a um, an important feast in ancient rome it was called the sol invictus the unconquerable sun and so they had this notion that the, the days are getting shorter and it you know looked like the sun was going out right and then all of a sudden it comes back to life so i don't think they actually thought the sun was going to disappear every you know december 20th but they had the sense that somehow nature was showing death rebirth and then of christ christ is the light because he makes the father known if you think about what light does you know you can have a dark room with all the objects in it you can't see what's there just as god was unknowable to the senses and then became knowable to our senses as christ and so that's this image of light and then the light conquers the darkness of death. And, and so the church comes along and says, hey, this is already a feast in the calendar. The Romans understand it. You know, it just makes sense to put it there. Whether or not they're trying to stamp out a pagan ritual doesn't really matter as much as this is the truth of things and nature is reinforcing the truth. Fantastic. I mean, it is quite um, interesting with the liturgical calendar. Uh, it, it works. It tries to balance it all out. So nine months Nine months earlier, it works out that the Annunciation has happened, and how and fitting it is. It's not an accident. So it's not an accident. So it's it's quite beautiful how uh, it's trying to see it in in real time. What would it have been like? It would have been nine months out of the birth, and so how the church has even thought that far ahead to make sure that the feast of the Annunciation is exactly nine months before Christmas Day, and so the dates need to all marry up. And uh, I guess they don't need to, but the, the the beautiful thing is that the church has thought this through and and have done this for us. Right. 
And if you do the math back behind the birth of John the Baptist, you'll find nine months before his birthday is actually the feast of sort of his conception in a sense, or his, um, you know, Elizabeth, he's kicking in the womb. And so you see these layers of time that take the human nature of things. How long does it take for a baby to be ready to be born? How did the sun and moon work? And then Christ comes in not to destroy all that, but to fulfill that and to show its deeper meaning. And that's, that's his job, right? Light, he unfolds and makes noble to us all the things that God, I wouldn't say hid in the world, but, you know, showed in, in uh, the time of shadow. And then they come out of shadow and into full existence or full understanding. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Now, a little bit more about uh, Advent today um, and how we celebrate. People may have been familiar with, um, we, we have typically four Sundays leading up uh, to Advent. There's different cal- uh, gift candles, um, and they're not all, there's three that are the same color. There's one that's uh, out of the ordinary, a bit, bit different again, and then there's a white one on Christmas Day. Um, would you like to comment, uh, Jesse, on, on this? What, what do the candles represent, and, and um, are there sort of... Um, meaning behind each of the each of them well every week there is that greater sense of preparation and joy and again you know making things progressive and like just like dennis said as more light floods into our lives that's where christ is and so it only makes sense that as as we get closer to the birth of our king of christ that there is more light. And so we're adding more light every week all the way up until the day that, that Christ is born. And, and then, of course, it just kind of adds that, that extra, um, you know, paraliturgical element to the liturgy because, you know, some of these things are also just devotions that we do in our, in our home. And so when, especially when you talk to Chris about, you know, uh, blessing the Advent wreath and, you know, different liturgies that come uh, with that, there, there's some unique things that happen, whether it's part of the actual liturgical rite or not. But um, it's it's clear that we are, you know, ramping up into something celebratory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The whole idea of the wreath, you know, whenever you see green evergreens in Catholic stuff, usually it's something German. You know, Germans had this kind of mystical sense of nature. And um, sometimes in their churches, even they have, they'll hide something in the Gothic architecture. It's called a green man. It's a little made out of branches and it's a little bit of their pre-Christian history that's still there. So they already had the sense of evergreen as standing for eternal life. And of course the circle of the wreath is, has no beginning and no end. And so they, they think that the, the wreath came from the, the Germanic tribes and then got sort of enculturated into uh, into Catholicism. Of course, the purple candles, purple is associated with royalty, was a very expensive color. And pink, or as rose more properly, is a color you don't see liturgically very often. It's a very rare thing. You know, you see it in the middle of Lent, or the, you know, toward the end of Lent anyway, and then in Advent, partly because these rejoicing days are meant to be relief from all those disciplines we're doing. I don't know how many people do penitential disciplines in Advent these days, but in the Eastern churches, it's still quite demanding you know fasting from not only meat but also dairy and eggs and wine and oil and so it's like, i don't know what's left uh to eat so we don't think of advent as a penitential season anymore but in many times in history of the world, it was five weeks it was uh longer sometimes with fairly strict uh, penitence so to have a week where you, you got to eat you know food in 40 days or four weeks uh depending that was a big deal right so now we just think oh there's that funny color jazz bowl and half the time priests don't even do it um but we should right to say okay here's this moment of joy that gives us a foretaste of the joy of christmas day that's fascinating um it it, i mean myself i i am uh from the eastern rites of maronite myself a maronite catholic and so that yes advent has already begun weeks ago um in a sense it's not called advent but it's uh, a different season the season of the birth of our lord that's it's coming right up um, and it goes for 40 days, basically. So very similar to the yep. Lent. Um, and I imagine the Coptics and the Ukrainians and all the other Eastern rites have, have got a, a more in, intense sort of preparation with fasting. In the West, uh, in, in the Roman rite was, uh, and it, with as regards to fast, it is recommended, as you say, it is a penitential season in the sense that we should give up something. What would there be, uh, although it's not enforced, is it? Is there, what, is there a recommendation even today in 2020, uh, to offer up sacrifices during this season? 
Yeah, I don't think there's anything by law. You know, the Western church doesn't have too many laws left anymore. You know, we have Fridays and Lent, a few days of Advent. Um, that's kind of it. But generally speaking, the whole notion of Advent is getting ready for the coming of the Lord, which means getting rid of distractions. So there's almsgiving, um, personal sacrifices, and these other things that are meant to open you up, quiet your the demands of your body so that you can receive the Lord. I think it's the same idea in the East and the West. It's just in the West where we've um, shifted. And this is actually a 20th century kind of shift from a penitential season, like a second Lent, to a joyful, hopeful expectation. And that was an intentional move in the liturgical reforms of the 20th century, which in many ways the Eastern churches haven't haven't done. But I kind of like your rigorous 40 days approach somehow. <laughs> so <laughs> it is penitential, but it's not penitential like Lent. No, that's right. That's right. Um, what, what about the readings? So the readings obviously are deliberately chosen. Um, there's uh, the book of Isaiah is, is, is definitely a major um, feature during this season. Um, and the Gospels are deliberately selected. Um, I mean, just typically all year round, the, the scriptures are, are deliberately selected for the, the season, which I think is a, a beautiful thing that the church has done for us. And, and many people may gloss over it and not realize how much detail there is in just the scripture readings um, and, and how the church has deliberately chosen what it's chosen for us. Um, can you comment a bit about what we can expect through the, the season of Advent um, uh, based on scripture, what readings will be sort of generally going through? Actually, I don't know off the top of my head the, the gospels that we'll be seeing. I can comment on Isaiah, though, that, um, you know, Isaiah is filled with all this prophecy, especially these notions of the end will be like the beginning or the desert will be like the garden again. And then even um, these readings about Christ that were foreshadowed, you know, the one with the girded belt of justice. There were beautiful readings today about the fire and all the stuff coming out of his eyes and it sounds a little scary um, but the idea the basic idea is after the fall everything's kind of out of whack right there's people out of right relationship with each other with themselves with god with creation and so disorder set chaos or sin is the problem and the time will come when they'll be dealt with and so all those kind of old testament expectations and yearning for the the restoration of the world you find those in particular in um, in isaiah he's full of those prophetic and beautiful poetic uh, representations of Christ, the one who will, who will bring right order to the world again. Yeah. Fantastic. What, there is one uh, really kind of fascinating thing about the readings that we talked about on our most recent podcast, but that there are four different sets of readings for Christmas, depending on when you celebrate Christmas. And wow. so there's, there's two readings for the day before Christmas. And then there's, um, to on the actual day of Christmas. So depending on when you actually celebrate and which mass you go to, you'll hear different readings, which is kind of a unique thing to be able to go through because we don't have that really in any type of vigil setting or, or anything to that extent, having four different sets of readings. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So, Yeah, it's not only readings, it's collects and other prayers. There are actually four different masses for Christmas. And the there's people wonder where do these things come from? And, you know, this is one of the great things about the 20th century and the 19th century, the recovery of the history of liturgy is they found that everybody wanted the Pope at their church in Christmas. And there are a lot of great churches in Rome. So there was one, you know, in the evening, one at midnight, one in the morning, one at midday. And um, he would go to all the churches and they would have different settings. And eventually that became the four masses of Christmas that were proper to the time of day. And even though, you know, we're not living in Rome. Nonetheless, it got in the Roman Missal. And so we, we see that history coming back into our own time of a particular historical situation. But nonetheless, it talks about light, darkness, genealogy, sunrise, you know, those kinds of things. And they, they all tie in perfectly with the, the Christian message. Yeah, wow. Fascinating. This, this is what I mean, the richness of our uh, church and the history. And, and it's great just to learn these things. And I can see uh, the work that you're doing uh, with, at the Liturgical Institute to just bring to light all these truths of the church. Uh, I highly encourage people to learn more about what you're doing at Liturgical Institute. Um, can I just, I want to dive into um, how to live Advent beautifully. And I know St. Thomas Aquinas has has a way of doing that or, or commentary on this and love to dive into that a bit more. Um, I just want to remind those people watching, uh, there is a free downloadable um, study guide. Inside of that study guide for this pilgrimage, we've actually put in the daily readings, scripture readings. So, a bit of a challenge throughout Red Advent is if you're not able to make Mass every day, then at least try, grab your Bible, 
look at those references and read along with the church. And, and so if you can do that right up to Christmas Day, you'll, you'll be better prepared than ever um, reading the, the book of Isaiah and all those other readings, the Psalms and the Gospel. So there, there's something for you to really prepare spiritually throughout the season of Advent, and that's in the free downloadable guide, which is on the landing page. Um, and I'll see if our guardian angel can find the link and grab it and pop it in the comments below before the end of the show. Um, so uh, can I ask St. Thomas Aquinas, he had some commentary about how to live Advent beautifully, and, and could we could we unpack that a little bit? Well, this was Jesse's idea. I don't I don't think we're talking about Thomas particularly coming and commenting on Advent, but he thought it would be good to talk about Thomas on beauty, yes. and we could apply that to Advent. And so this is something I never get tired of talking about, but essentially, what, what word am I going to say, Jesse? You know the word starts with O. Ontology. Um, ontology. Okay, so <laughs> this one, when I say one of my favorite ologies, but um, ontos in Greek means being. It's the Greek word for being. So when you talk about ontology, it's talking about being. Logos, you can see in ology is there. So words about being. And when you talk about being, you're already talking about existence and what forms things take. And so his um, logic is that we call a thing beautiful when it reveals what it is according to its very nature. In other words, it's ontological reality. So, you know, you have some unusual animals down there in Australia, right? Kangaroos and whatever a dingo baby is. I don't know. All I know that's they're not unusual. No. Okay. Oh, well. <laughs> so if you said your kangaroo looks like a koala, it's either a really ugly koala or you don't know what you're talking about. And so this understanding that a beautiful koala has to exhibit koala-ness, right? It has to reveal what it is, which already I said, you don't know what you're talking about. We tend to think beauty hangs around the emotions. I look at something and I shed a tear. I have a feeling, but actually in this, what they call the realist tradition, beauty is an object of the intellect because you know what a koala is. You know, if that's a good koala, because it looks like one and you know what its attributes are. You know what it is according to its being. So I think a lot of what we do in the liturgical Institute and, you know, in the liturgy guys, and now I'm in uh, Benedictine College in Kansas, is coming back to those essentials. What is Advent? What is liturgy? What is a sacrifice? What is all this? And that's what we're constantly going back to, this ontological thing, because if you want it to celebrate it beautifully, you have to know what it is. It has to reveal its ontological reality. And so the questions you're asking, what's Advent? Where did it come from? What, is, what are its characteristics? Are all prerequisites for doing it beautifully. Because if you don't know what Advent is, you say, well, that's, the, that's my feast every day. And then Christmas Day, I rest from my feasting, well, then you've got it all backwards and you wouldn't call it a beautiful Advent. So um, that's that basic Thomistic understanding. Know what it is, the level of its being, and then you know what to do. And there, and there are three categories that uh, St. Tom, Thomas Aquinas uses to help us understand is something actually beautiful, integritas, claritas, and consonantia. So Dennis, do you want to break those down for us? And then maybe we can look at those principles and see what about Advent is beautiful when we see it in the liturgy. Sure. Yeah, these are what he calls the constituent elements of beauty. So for a thing to be beautiful, it has to do these things. So the first one, integritas, it's the word integrity is in there. It means wholeness or perfection in being. So can you have a beautiful Advent if you don't celebrate it fully? Well, not really. The more fully it's done, according to its nature, the more beautiful it will be. If you do 1% of what the church asks, you'll have a little tiny bit of Advent. If you do 100% and it transforms your life, then you can say, oh, that's a beautiful Advent, because the reality of Advent is being known to you. So wholeness or perfection in being. Uh, consonancia is proportionality. You can see them there, con and sonare. So it literally means to sound together. It's, it's another word for harmony. So if your life is proportional in Advent, what does that mean? Well, joyful expectation. You'll see in the liturgy, quieter music. You'll see fewer flowers. You'll see less. Uh, you won't see the Gloria, for instance, on Sundays. That's proportionate, not to Easter Sunday or Christmas Day, but to Advent, where things start to in waiting. We're waiting for the Gloria. There's an old tradition in uh, the church where they would bury the Alleluia in uh, in um, Lent. I don't know if you've heard of this, but they'd actually take Alleluia on a piece of paper or board and write it out with Gregorian chant. They would bury it in the ground like, like it was dead. And then it would come back on Easter. You know, so it goes away and then comes back. This is proportionate to Lent. Similar things are proportionate to uh, to Advent. And then the last one is, the, is called um, um, claritas. It just means the power to reveal what you're doing. So we all have the power to reveal a good advent. 
you have the right color vestments, you have the right color candles, you have the right um, choice of what you preach about, you have fewer flowers, you have quieter music, no glory, all of that stuff. We have the power to reveal that and the chances do we do we do it. So if you do everything you're supposed to do fully, if it's proportionate to the season and you have capacity to do it, then you can talk about experiencing the fullness of its reality or the fullness of the beauty of Advent. And so that's why you have to know what it is. You can't do it right if you don't know what it is. That's fantastic. Um, can I just comment? I mean, uh, one one little thing here would be uh, in our secular culture, we, we you're right, we don't know what Advent is. We, we see it as Christmas already. We begin Christmas almost five, six weeks early, and Advent's like the beginning of Christmas for some. And it's, uh, can we clar- that is a separate season, right? Uh, is, is Advent its own season? And is Christmas yes. its own season? And uh, mm-hmm. is it separate yep. to Advent? Yep. And I even I even saw a friend of mine on Facebook the other day say, ah, I bought this Advent calendar and, and it has the 25 days of Christmas and you get a little piece of candy every year. That's not an Advent calendar. That's that's mm-hmm. a it's not even like a proper Christmas, like liturgical Christmas calendar. That's just a countdown uh, 25 days into Christmas. That's all that is. But you see these things and they they market them as an Advent calendar. But that's not that's not entirely what it is. And so. And to, to Dennis's point about clarity and proportions, our culture, especially this year after a, a really long pandemic and still happening, uh, we're, we're seeing people wanting to celebrate Christmas even earlier than anybody ever wanted to. And so if you go into mass on Sunday and you see in the sanctuary all these trees and lights and flowers, is that proportionate? Uh, are, are we going to start to feel like maybe this is already Christmas when it's not, when we're supposed to be in the anticipatory uh, stage? And then Claritas, is is that covering what we're actually supposed to be seeing in the liturgy? And so we're seeing these things play out and we're kind of you know, sometimes combating with culture, just like the church uh, and, and, you know, religion and faith often uh, combats culture sometimes. But, uh, but, those are some elements that we'll see practically in our liturgical celebrations that maybe we need to take a step back and say, okay, is this overshadowing what's actually happening? Is this proportionate? Is it clear what we're doing? And of course the arguments always go, you know, they're the hardcore types. You can't have a Christmas tree until Christmas Eve, right? Because otherwise you're anticipating the feast too much and it's not joyful expectation. (laughs) On the other hand, you see the Christmas tree and maybe there's presence under it but you can't open them until Christmas. So it stirs desire, right? There's this hopeful expectation. So you know, everybody has to figure out in their own lives how they decide to, f- to give a foretaste of Christmas. Here I am, you know, here's my stocking right here that my mom <laughs> hangs on the wall when I'm visiting. And um, am I violating the spirit of Advent? Not really, because, you know, you're waiting to see what's going to show up in the stocking <laughs> on Christmas Day. But Dennis, I don't think that's proportionate to the size of your foot. I think we we have some problems. I don't know that <laughs> no, that's a beautiful not even proportionate size. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was thinking about this stocking. This is not useful as a as a sock, right? I mean, we don't really use the word stockings for socks anymore. But you see what happens when things become conventional. They become part of ritual as they start losing their literalness and they start growing into somewhat odd, right? This is a gigantic stocking that no one will ever put on their foot. Advent's a little bit like that, you know, mm. that it starts out for a reason. There's a penitential waiting. Some some people think that it began with people who are waiting to be baptized. And then it becomes a part of the, the ceremonial life of the church. And it's not literally about waiting to be baptized anymore. It's about waiting for the second coming of Christ. And that's the nature of ritual. It's always slightly outside the literal and it's meant to make us uh, understand the bigger picture rather than just follow the law. You know, that, that stocking will never fit in my shoe, and it doesn't matter because the bigger it is, the more stuff I can get in it, and it will be <laughs> Christmassy. That's interesting what you're saying. I mean, uh, when yeah, uh, so the those who might say you can be, you can be very extreme in, in in some cases where yeah, don't put any trees up, don't put anything up. But I think uh, I, I know personally at our household we do have a tree up, but we don't put um, we don't decorate it with all the colors. We, we have it actually decorated with purple um, and to keep it in season. So it's sort of a tree in waiting and it's got the purple uh, tinsel and purple um, ornaments. And then when it, on the, on Christmas Eve, we actually add all the color and then, it, then here it comes and uh, great. Uh, little things. I mean, people have different um, nativity scenes at home or uh, yeah, different advent calendars or, or Jesse trees, uh, things like that. Uh, um, 
it, what more can we comment here about about some of these other, I guess, traditions that have formed over the years, and and they may not necessarily be liturgical. Where um, does the church comment on these? Like, is the Jesse tree, for example, got anything to do with uh, liturgy, or is that something? Is a church have anything there? Where did that come from? Is that a is that a Catholic thing? Is it a Protestant thing? Is it a just some a, a nice idea to do? And I guess there's these other things that, that pop up as well. Yeah, is there? Do you actually have? What do you do in Australia with a Jesse tree? Like, you actually have some sort of object? I mean, I know it as a biblical concept. But what do you have there? I just uh, yeah, there's different form. People may have um, an actual tree, and you put you can have um, the different. You go through salvation history typically. Um, now it's mm-hmm. not it's not widely practiced. It's not something that is common. Um, but it is known among at least those in the know-how would, would, would go through and notice uh, a particular way of preparing for Christmas is going through salvation history. Um, and it's interesting because within this pilgrimage, we wanted, I wanted to pick up on that idea of starting from, from uh, Eden and going all the way up to Bethlehem as we prepare this journey through Advent. And so we're trying to attempt to do that, but it's not strictly speaking the exact dressy tree, but, when I researched, I didn't see any consistent way of doing the dressy tree because uh, people had different traditions behind it. So uh, I don't know, is that something that was a, a recent development or where, where did this idea come from? Does anyone? Yeah, I'll have to tell you, I've never heard of a Jesse tree as an actual plant tree thing. I mean, I've never <laughs> seen one, never, never heard of it before you mentioned it right now. You know, of course, it's a biblical idea, right? That this yes. stump will again, you know, the, the tree of the, of knowledge of good and evil that led to the downfall of humanity in a sense gets cut down and destroyed, but then it grows again as the tree of, and so all these tree images are, and salvation history images there, there's a lot of good things about trees, you know, Christ is a carpenter, he works with wood. And um, he also as a carpenter would work with stone, right? So he's a builder, he's building up his body again, he's building up this new temple. And so you have these biblical ideas like the tree of Jesse that then somehow take root. So, you know, there's the, the um, the O antiphons, which are um, yes. many people don't know about them. So the Liturgy of the Hours is a really good way to participate in Advent, I think, if someone has access to have the Liturgy Hours and really go through, especially maybe the Office of Readings, because they have all the Advent-inspired uh, readings. But then you get to the last eight days of Advent, and uh, the uh, canticle starts with the O antiphon. It's O, tr- o Rod of David, O, you know, whatever. There are all these names from the Old Testament for Christ. One of them is the tree of Jesse. Um, and so that's a great way to to bring these things into your, to your life every day, especially as it gets closer to Christmas, those last eight days. In fact, at the Liturgical Institute, we never send Christmas cards. We always send Advent cards, and we put one of the uh, Oandafons on the cover every year so we could never be accused of anticipating Christmas. Uh, but we're still <laughs> liturgical. We're, we're working on those right now, Dennis. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. So... I'm glad you mentioned antiphons because there is a there is definitely a, an obvious change of gears, if you like. There is definitely um, a transition there um, in the readings, in in the responses, and uh, those O antiphons um, are quite beautiful. And liturgy of the hours you just touched on, um, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. Many lay people may not realize um, that we even have the liturgy of the hours. What is the liturgy of the hours? And that could be a new little. Um, uh, thing to introduce for people if they have not ever prayed the liturgy of the hours what is it um and and how could they begin yeah well it's an extension of the mass that's so his fundamental fundamental ideas that the, the the riches of the mass are so great that in your 45 minutes or an hour you can't tease them out and so you pray at different hours of the day this goes all the way back to the temple tradition you see it in the book of acts too they, they go back to the temple at the third hour the sixth hour the ninth hour and so on and uh, there's usually some uh, psalmody and a short reading and some intercessions in the morning and evening prayer, especially. And then they're assigned to different hours of the day, morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, and uh, prayer are the most common ones. But there's mid-afternoon prayer and there's some ones in the middle of the night that more austere monks get up and, uh, <laughs> and celebrate. Uh, but the idea is that all day long, how can you pray without ceasing? Monks do this, right? They pray and work, but then they, they'll pray seven hours a day, eight hours a day, as much as a human being uh, can do. But this is open to to regular lay people as well. You can get a Christian prayer or, you know, Magnificat magazine. There's others that make it a little more accessible. 
and you ponder the Psalms about the coming of Christ and you get to ponder the readings and uh, it extends it out through the day, gives you something to contemplate. Yeah, beautiful. And a lot of those, a lot of those hours, actually, if you're looking to go back to liturgical time, they line up with significant events that happen during Christ's passion. So when the cock crows in the morning, um, and then you know we have we have Peter's denial three times, and then you hear the cock crows. That's one of the one of the times of the day that we're praying. When he's in the garden, that's one of the times that we're praying. At three o'clock, when he's on the cross and he dies. That's one of the times we're praying. So the liturgy of the hours, the religious will line up uh, traditionally. It just lines up with Christ's passion so that they can live the Paschal mystery in prayer every day. And so, it's, again, just like we've been talking about this whole time, there's intentionality. Everything has a purpose. There's a reason that we do some of these things. And so when you encounter somebody who's excited about liturgy and wants to talk about this stuff, it's not just because they are finicky and they want things done their way or they're stubborn. It's because that, that time itself and feasts and celebrations are consecrated and sec and sanctified so that we can better encounter Christ and his saving mystery for us. So this, that's a gift. It's a gift to be able to see order in all of that chaos. That's beautiful. So, so just to begin, yeah. and you know, uh, where to, where to go uh, to, to learn more about the liturgy of the hours? I mean, is it, I, I know I've read a, a document about um, since Vatican II, the lay people were encouraged to pray uh, the liturgy of the hours. So, and it's sort of a simplified version than what it was beforehand. It wasn't as long. Uh, it's not as long as it used to be. Um, so it is a lot more um, digestible, if you like, or more, more accessible. Um, literally, you could read through, um, you know, what, morning prayer is like 10 or 15 minutes and, and you know midday prayer is like five minutes if you were to read it straight through um and so it's not so um taxing on your time as it used to be uh, and so monks would typically pray it but lay people are encouraged and um i i, I personally love doing it I, I don't get every hour in but i try to get as many as we can and try to introduce the children to it but i i i, I do understand the idea of um the season does come alive a lot more you sort of relive throughout the day a lot more intentional um what's going on and i certainly do draw out of 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 the day uh, just a lot more spiritual fruit than than if had i not have prayed the hours uh, um but where to begin um is there is there a direction you can i know universalis is one place people can go to is that a recommendation is there another place people can go to I think there's no shortage of places now that will teach you how to use the liturgy of the hours. Of course, the Liturgical Institute published a great book called the Mundelein Psalter. And yes. uh, it's the whole thing in one one book, at least morning and evening prayer and night prayer. And uh, us has music set to it and the traditional hymns. That's one of the interesting things about the hymnody for the different seasons usually relates to the seasons. Many times people just say, oh, we'll start with a hymn and they just sing some song they like. My morning prayer will have songs about the rising of the sun. The evening prayer is about the setting of the sun. And Advent will have, you know, the opening hymn about the coming of the Christ and so on. And so that's a great, a great uh, book to use. And uh, Mike, there, I don't know if you have, do you get Magnificat in Australia? The little magazine, Magnificat? I've heard of it, but I don't know if we have it locally distributed. Uh, but uh, I'm going to get our guardian angel to make sure we can find the links to for people to, to know more yeah. about it. It's a little journal about the size of the old Reader's Digest, and it and it has it day by day. So you don't have to flip any ribbons. It has little commentaries. It has little mini homilies for each uh, you know, great reading. And it's a, it's a great little um, thing to help you do the Liturgy of the Hours, especially if you don't know how to use the big four-volume thing with all the flipping of yeah. pages and all that. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure because we at Perusia want to really um, just reintroduce this to, to people. And, and I think um, uh, it's an area of, of our spiritual life, our prayer life that we could rediscover and, and, and introduce for the first time for many people. Uh, and so however we can do to educate and train people in this space, I think it's going to be very beneficial um, for our church as a whole. Yeah. Um, you know what this is reminding me of as we speak now is why we have liturgical seasons at all. You know, it's, yes, oh, it's Advent, it's Christmas, it's Easter, whatever. This is a funny thing, you know, that time, as Jesse mentioned, is sanctified. So time's a creature. It's made by God for our benefit. He's outside of time. He doesn't need time. So angels don't have time. And we do because we have a fallen intellect. And so we need time to think about things. You know, your mother says to you, 
don't do that. You don't fall into like angelic obedience and understanding immediately when you're four years old, right? You need to grow into this mastery of your body, your mind, the what's good, what's better. And so time is an aspect of God's mercy that he says, all right, you've fallen into like creatures of mine. I love you enough to give you 50, 60, 70, 80 years <laughs> to make your choice for me. And you get reminded all the time. So every Sunday, of course, you have the Sabbath, but then you have seasons that bring out particular mysteries of the church. And then once the season, the year's over, you do it again. You're the same person that you were the year before because you know more, you've paid more attention, you have the greater capacity to sit still. You know, I would guess, Jesse, that, you know, as wonderful as your kids are, they're not really paying too much attention to the readings at, at Mass yet. But next year, there'll be more and then more and more. And, more. and consequently, neither am I sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, sitting still. Yeah. And so the idea of a time to actually say, all right, I'm going to make an intentional move to think about the coming of Christ and ponder it and make my heart ready for it. And then I'll do the same thing next year when I'm a little more ready. And then the year after that and the year after that, it constantly calls us away from our natural complacency and tendency to do what we want. And so it's this great attribute of, of uh, mercy of God. That, that's a great point. Um, something we take for granted, um, the, the liturgical seasons do help us. It's, it's more for us humans uh, who are in time and, and how it helps us focus on different aspects and sort of break the year up um, and allow us not to, to miss out on all of the, the great gems uh, in our faith and, and, and salvation history and what God's done for us. And um, I, I just think the liturgical cycle is just, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> when people really break it down and understand it, it's, it really goes to a whole new level. And it's something as Catholics we take for granted. And, and I guess our, our non-Catholic uh, friends, um, Christians, are, are, may, are missing out on so much here where, where they may not be familiar with, with this stuff and that people typically know Christmas, Easter, and that's probably as far as it goes. But there's even more to it with, with, between those major feasts so much around the year. Right. One of my favorite stories, I think it was Pope Pius XI, which whoever the Pope was who put the Feast of Christ the King in the calendar, it was, you know, to it was an antidote to the wars in Europe, World War One and World War Two, that the true king was not there battling armies, but but it was Christ. And he said in the document promulgating the feast, he says nobody reads documents by popes. So here he's writing a document. He says nobody reads documents by popes. What they do is they celebrate liturgically things in the, in their parish and their lives in their town. And so he thought it was much more useful to have a feast of Christ the King than to just write another document about Christ the King, because then it would be brought into people's lives and their daily. Uh, living. And that's the point, right? The church makes us stop what we're doing. Even even in our secularized world, everybody has the day off on Christmas. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that it still interrupts the culture and says, hey, here's the birth of Christ. Here's where you should pay attention. And that's what it's meant to do. And if you look at Easter, it's the same way. I mean, it's a big, it's a big, you know, shopping season. You put all the Easter stuff out. But all of these companies, like the chocolate companies and the candy companies, inevitably they are beholden to the liturgical calendar because Easter changes every year. And so you have these executives and marketing people that have to look up the liturgical calendar yeah, of yeah. Easter. When what was day the 14th is Easter? Of Nissan? Yeah. <laughs> and then they have to adjust their marketing so campaigns to, to adhere to the Christian calendar, which is such a cool thing to think about is that, you know, they still have to, uh, to listen to the church when it comes to something that they want to be involved with from a secular standpoint. That's a great point. Uh, I know that Easter, for example, does change every year. Um, and, and there was talk about how to fix that in a, in a secular culture. They want to just fix it every year, pick, pick, you know, whatever it is, first Sunday of, of April or whatever they want to pick. Um, and so it's consistent, but it, they're missing the point, aren't they? About what, why we have a, a moving uh, date. Um, uh, I'm interested to know Christmas is an interesting one because the date isn't just December 25th for all Catholics. Uh, so even across the, the East, our, our Coptic friends uh, celebrate it on a different day. And even some of the Armenian and, and other, other Greek uh, um, calendars have different days, like January 6th or January 7th. Any comment there? And why, why is it different? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know the particulars of the history, but that's the funny thing about liturgy. It doesn't come down from heaven in a book from God says, do it this way, right? There's theology and there's logic and there's the, the truth of history. And then God lets us 
do what we think is best with it. And so if you come out of the tradition and you've suddenly, you know, added months and you've fixed the Gregorian calendar and you've done different things and then someone outside that culture doesn't change that calendar, then they're keep their tradition alive. And so, you know, Christian unity is, is great. And in fact, Pope, uh, Pope uh, Francis talked about the possibility of having a common date for Easter. And there's, not, there's nothing magical about that. Even the early church, they were trying to decide how should we set the feasts of Easter? Should it be based on the moon? Should it be based on the day of the resurrection and all this stuff? And they, they agree. And finally, the Western church decided and the Eastern church did something else. And that's okay. You know, God doesn't show up with a, an iron rod and say, do it this way or else. He says, I want it to be local and appropriate to your culture, because what I want you to know is who I am and whatever works best for you. As long as it's true, uh, there's a certain latitude uh, according to the, the different churches and their different local customs. And despite what people may think, the church is actually always changing. And so, you know, we, we're, this is not the mass that we have today. This is not the mass that was that was available in the first few months after uh, Christ's ascension. And so, and and I think we'd be foolish to think that, oh, I, I, we finally got it right. Like, this is the perfect mass. And so I think we'll always continue to develop as our culture develops and grows. And as we begin to understand, know, and know God even better over the next centuries, we'll start to see some more adaptations and changes. And so um, it's, it's a wonderful thing that it's not... Uh, uh, this is the way it's done. You have to do the exact same way for three, four, five thousand years. And if you don't do it that way, then you're totally wrong. And so that's the human element that uh, is a part of all of these things, which I think is very unique. This is a be- the truth that God is infinite, right? And so it's inexhaustible. And so we're constantly still learning about these truths and it's, it's constantly been unveiled to us. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing uh, the way the church uh listens to the Holy Spirit and, and is constantly um, unpacking what we've learned from 2,000 years ago and from, from salvation history. We're still learning. We're still uh, understanding everything, and um, it's quite beautiful. Now, we only have a few yes. minutes left, and um, we've touched on a, a bit of beauty, um, what is beauty, how to live Advent beautiful. Just finally, and, and then and then I'd love to talk about it, and uh, have an, I know there's an announcement, a special deal for those at the Liturgical Institute, but um, just finally here as a, a final um, question, how do we take any of the principles we've learned today uh, and use them on our Advent journey to maximize our hope? How do we, how do, we do that? Hmm. Well, I, maybe I'll go first and you can finish up there, Jesse. Um, you know, hope is this belief in things that are not seen. And you think about the complexity of the salvation story. The Israelites didn't know what we know, right? There's the famous scripture, you know, Christ says, everybody's wanted to know what you know and see what you see. Here I am. I'm the savior, right? And they don't, they don't know what to make of that. And so the complexity of liturgical history, of salvation history, I think in some way is something that says, wow, it's not easy. It's been long and prepared. The stars are involved. The sun's involved. The, the moon is involved. And then the church has guarded this from generation to generation. And here we go. If there's anything that should have fallen apart over time, it's this complexity of salvation history, <laughs> the complexity of liturgical history. And instead, it keeps growing and still with us. So, um, you know, wait for the coming of Christ to understand the nature of God, the ontology of God as a father who created us in love, wants to redeem us in love, wants us to be redeemed in a way that's proper to us. We even get presents on Christmas Day and uh, chocolates in our Advent calendars. He doesn't say wait in the corner 10,000 years until uh, I come to get you and you, you know what you did, like a giant timeout. He says, I'm going to lay out the whole array of history, nature, creation, intellect, will, and let you delight in it on your path to salvation. And so that's the message beneath everything we talked about. Is God wants us back in his heart so he can love us. And he's given us a thousand ways in and Advent and all the traditions are one of the really important ways. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. J- Jesse, do you have uh, any final thoughts here? I, I, I love what you said, Dennis, about having thousands of different ways into that encounter with Christ. And it's totally true. And, and, and as we talk again about the liturgical year and the calendar, there's so many different ways in which we can enter that. And, and just thinking about uh, light and, you know, okay, so, you know, obviously with the Northern Hemisphere, you know, right now or in fall, things are, things are looking like they're dying, they're dead. 
And then we start to say, oh, my gosh, it's so dark. You know, I'm, maybe I'm sad because it's so dark all the time. And then we start to have that, that moment of hope and joy. And that is the, is the child Christ. And so we await and we expect him. And then when we see his passion in Easter and we see him rise and, and, uh, and we see new life enter the earth through springtime. And so, uh, like Dennis said, if we can enjoin ourselves with the cosmos and enjoin ourselves with these traditions and the, and the gift of progressive solemnity and the gift of, of anticipation and hope, because just like time is sanctified, the emotions are also sanctified. Hope is sanctified through the season of Advent. Expectation, anticipation, those emotions, the effectivity of our human nature is itself sanctified when we offer that so offer that in the mass. And so that's really what the biggest thing is, is, is when you're in the mass, you need to be offering yourself. And Advent allows you to do that in a very specific way. But if you're anxious and you don't have hope and you're desolate, offer that in the mass because what you will get in return is you will see, receive yourself perfected through Christ and you will receive that joy. You will receive that hope in anticipation for the child Christ. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, those who want to learn more about the, the liturgical institute, about the mass and study about the liturgy, um, you have a very special deal um, happening right now and it's exclusive. We've got it. We've got those on in the Advent pilgrimage are able to take advantage of this. Uh, Jesse, would you be able to comment on that and um, and and how do we learn about it? Sure. We have an online study program for the liturgy for the mass and all things about the mass. So not just what is the mass and how to participate, but we also have a we just released a whole course on liturgical time, uh, which includes some portions on the liturgy of the hour. So Charbel, you should definitely take part. But we have 14 classes available. We'll be launching a class next month with Dennis on uh, the theology of uh, liturgical music that will be launched uh, the second week of December. All of these courses you can get for half off during Advent. So for all Perusia members and and people that are part of your network, you can go to perusia.liturgy.online. And if you use the coupon code ADVENT, you'll get half off anything you buy off of our online study program. That's phenomenal. So we've got the uh, link below. Please take advantage. Thank you so much. Uh, that's very generous of you. And I really hope people take advantage of that um, because, wow, what, what a beautiful way to learn. And you guys, as far as I can see, uh, no one does it better at this stage. I've seen uh, uh, many people attempt to uh, describe the liturgy, but the liturgy guides are on, on song. Uh, Liturgical Institute is doing it the way it's meant to be, and I love it um, and learning more about it. And that's why we're very keen and excited to be partnering with you on 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 this, and so please take advantage. I want to thank you, um, Dr. Dennis McNamara, uh, for for joining us today, and and, and Jesse Weiler. Absolutely, God bless. Thank you. God bless. You are in our prayers. Pray for us. Thanks. That's another show. Uh, that's our first live show for the Advent pilgrimage.